You are listening to the Stories of Healing and Wonderlust podcast, and I am your host, Lou Kelly. Join me each fortnight as I explore the wild and wonderful world of healing, conscious living, yoga, self-development, travel, and the journey of life. We explore the very real human experiences that we go through and the many ways we overcome these challenges. I share with you via solo chats and also in conversation with some extraordinary guests. This podcast is a curation of relatable yet inspirational stories, and it showcases the varied voices in the healing and self-development space today. I hope you enjoy. Hello, beautiful listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Stories of Healing and Wonderlust. We are at episode 16, and today I have another incredible guest for you, and that is the beautiful Ash Butters, who is a friend of mine. She is a colleague of mine. She teaches yoga at a couple of the same studios, and she's an all-round epic sober human who also has her own podcast, which is Behind the Smile. And I thought it would be incredible to get her on to share her story. She talks so eloquently and articulately about the struggles of sobriety, how it relates to trauma, how it relates to childhood. We go into attachment styles, we go into relationships, and we really get a lot of flow going in this episode. I know that it's going to help a lot of people to hear her story and what she's gone through, where she's come from and where she is now, sharing her support and her light with the world all around sobriety and health and well-being. She's such a healthy, happy, vibrant soul. So I'm just so thrilled that she came on and we got to have this chat. A little intro to her, she is a well-being mentor. She's a yoga teacher, like I mentioned, and she is a creator of the Behind the Smile podcast, which is all about recovery. And she designed this podcast to expose and remove the stigma around mental health, trauma, and addiction. After making the decision to get sober in 2020, Ash set out on a mission. She quit her corporate job and she dove deeply into the world of self-development and recovery. She says her mission is to smash through the stereotype that surrounds addiction and to help people live a fulfilled life connected to their purpose. This is Ash Butters. Ash Butters, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to have you here, beauty. Oh, hi, Lou. It's so good to be here. Finally, we've made it happen. We made it happen. Timing is everything. That's it. So one of my favorite things about teaching yoga in Melbourne is that we work with so many absolute legends. And I love the fact that it's such a a great community. And I love the fact that we are colleagues at a couple of studios. So it's been so nice to connect with you in person. Obviously, I love listening to your podcast as well, your podcast Behind the Smile, which is Mm. an incredible uh, podcast that really focuses on sobriety. Yeah, thank you. And also self-development. And we're going to get into all of that and your incredible story. But the first question I love to ask my guests is, what is one practice that you go to that really can just drop you into your body and out of any funky energy? Oh, it's it's meditation. And it's so interesting that you ask me that question right off the bat, because right before we got on this call here together today, I went and did a 10-minute guided meditation because I was sharing with you offline that my energy's been quite out of whack recently. I had a bit of a panic attack about a week ago, and that's set off some trauma that's just kind of 
simmering away. And as a result, it's, it's triggered some anxiety and I'm really processing that and leaning into it rather than trying to run away and escape, which would have been my old way of dealing with things. I'm, I'm leaning into the discomfort but I could tell that I wasn't quite in my body and I wanted to be really present here for our conversation today. So without a doubt, that was the first thing that I went to. And I always finish off my meditation practice with a prayer to my higher power. So those two coupled together is just pure magic for me. Mm, how incredible to have those tools mm. to be able to shift our state. You, you, your and my story is actually quite similar. And when I've been researching into kind of your story and like listening to your podcast a few times, your your story, <laughs> I see a lot of parallels. Mm. For context, I am not in recovery like you are, but I have had times when I certainly could have benefited from help in that way. Mm-hmm. I'm in a place in my life now where I'm not using substances in a way that's destructive or I'm not participating in addictive behaviors, but there are certainly been times in my past where I have. Mm-hmm. And something that you speak so well about is how trauma in our past causes us to act mm. in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Trauma is, it, it's so interesting because when I went to rehab, I remember we were asked to do this process called a timeline where we we identified from the age of zero to 17, any significant moments throughout our lives. And as I was given the instructions on how to do this, I remember walking away thinking, hmm, I don't think I've got much to put pen to paper on, but I'll give it a go. And I ended up filling the page with all of these things that I thought might be considered instances or things that had occurred that I should probably mention. And I remember getting to the end of reading my timeline and my primary therapist looking back at me and she was just in utter shock. And what she explained to me was that I hadn't just experienced one traumatic event throughout my life. I had experienced multiple traumas. And because they weren't what we identify as those big T traumas, like, you know, I I hadn't at that point in time lost a parent or, you know, I'd never been sexually assaulted. Like I didn't think that I had trauma. I didn't think that I qualified Mm. to to identify as having had trauma. But what I learned was there were all of these micro traumas along the way uh, that had impacted and influenced the way that I did life. Because when we experience trauma, our natural instinct is to start to put up barriers or put on armor to protect ourselves, to close the wound and to not let it happen again. And one of the ways that I did that was was with alcohol, alcohol and drugs. But that becomes really destructive because number one, it stops us from processing the trauma. But number two, we then become addicted to those patterns, those behaviors, and then we can end up spiraling out of control, which is what happened to me. But it's amazing. I really, I honestly, hand on heart, believe that it's almost impossible to reach adulthood without experiencing at least one or two traumas along the way. Mm, 100%. 
we, like life is traumatic, just <laughs> the nature of life, little big and little t traumas. Well, Lou, birth is traumatic. Yeah. Like yeah. you're sitting there in your mother's womb, you're safe, you're warm, it's been nine months of bliss, nurture, protection, and then all of a sudden you're ripped out of that safe space into these bright lights. Most of the time, if you're born in the Western world, there's doctors, lights, everything going on. Like that's where the trauma starts if we want to really mm. get down to the microcosm of it. But yeah, even things like, you know, I'll give you another example. My dad saying that he'd be home for dinner and then not coming home for three days. That's a trauma. Mm. You know, things that where as children, we don't feel safe, we don't feel nurtured. Anything that creates that is a trauma. So any attachment style that isn't secure can be traumatic, really. Absolutely. Yes. And, and, and to go on from that, it's not just abandonment, but it can be enmeshment as well. Mm -hmm. So if you, if your primary caregiver is enmeshed with you and you, you know, you become mummy's little helper and she's there divulging all of her deepest, darker secrets to you, including, you know, the behaviors and the relationship she has with your father, that's trauma. It is. And (laughs) And and then further on, when you leave home and you've still got those patterns of relating, then you're suddenly in a romantic relationship and then you're in those same patterns of attachment and then the trauma continues to the point where you're like, I can't function like this. Yeah, and that's where I know for me, trauma bonding, um, that was something that I did in a lot of my previous relationships, including with my my now ex-husband. Uh, and we just, we became very codependent and enmeshed because they were the attachment styles that we had with our parents and that that's what had been modeled to us. And so we just were like, like woof together and everything happened really fast. Uh, and really it was quite toxic looking back, but at the time it felt really, really good. And so we wanted more and more and more of it. And that's the hard part is when you're in it, it's very hard to see out until it stops working a bit like with substance abuse. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I speak of addictive behaviors, relationships, love addiction, you know, is a huge one. Oh my goodness. And that's something that's really interesting with the women that I work with in recovery often will put down our primary addiction, which is generally with the people I work with alcohol or drugs. But then what do you start to pick up instead of? And relationships are definitely one that I think people lean towards because it gives us the same rush that we experience Mm. from those other substances. It just looks a little different. So we can trick ourselves into thinking that it's perhaps a healthier way of escaping reality. But at the end of the day, if you're still using it to check out, then it's not super helpful in the long run so true. It's so, there's just so many layers to being healthy and well in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I knew we'd go so deep so fast, Ash. (laughs) (laughs) So how long, I'm thinking it's three years, how long have you been sober for now? So I just ticked over three and a half a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, three years and six months. Congratulations. Oh, thank you, Lou. Thank you. No small feat. Mm, it's crazy, you know. Now that I'm in it, it feels like a really short amount of time in that I spend a lot of time with people who have decades of sobriety now. So I do feel like a, a real junior burger in many ways, but that's not to discredit the mammoth effort that it is because I still remember where 24 hours felt like something that was so unattainable. So Mm. to sit here at three and a half years and look back, like I I do fully acknowledge 
just how amazing it is and how unattainable that may be for somebody who's listening, who is struggling to get two or three days together. But that's where we go back to this whole idea of one day at a time, because really that's all we do have is today. And as long as you can keep it in the day and just stay sober for today, then you start to string days together. And that's where the years and the decades start to add up. Mm, And you are certainly such an inspiration to your community and you're sharing so much, like just inspiration, I would say. And I'm really looking forward to sharing your story because I know that there's people out there who maybe haven't heard your story and are struggling with some form of addiction and just feel like you're here and my hand's like up high because there's no video (laughs) and they're feeling like, how am I ever going to get there? So Mm. I want to just go back to kind of where it started with you and just go through your journey, basically. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, Lou. So I grew up in an alcoholic home and what that looked like for me was my father is an alcoholic in recovery. So he first got sober in 2010 uh, and still attends regular 12-step meetings to this day. And my mother was the daughter of an alcoholic. So there's alcoholism on both sides of my family tree. And my parents used to really love drinking together. Now, They were never physically violent towards myself or my brother, but they could definitely get heated towards one another. You know, I think there was one time I remember at a very early age, I think my mum threw an iron across the room towards my dad's head, Uh, but it it was predominantly verbal. So there was a lot of yelling, there was a lot of screaming and a lot of raging. And I remember feeling from a very, very young age unsafe and unsure, unsure about what version I was going to get of my mum or my dad on any given day. So you've heard that saying, walking on eggshells. It was very much that environment within my family home. And so from a very young age, I learned how to become a chameleon and I would shape shift and change myself to become who you needed me to be. And that was a way of protecting myself I later found out, but at the time, that's just what I learned to do. It was a survival mechanism and it worked for a period of time. But as I started to get older, I started to get more and more disconnected from the person I truly was because I never spent time actually just being little Ash. I was always whoever you needed me to be in any given circumstance. So there was that part of my character And then at the same time, because there was so much chaos in the home, I'm not sure if you've ever heard Dr. Gabor Mate talk Mm. about children are inherently narcissistic. No, I've never heard him say that, but I love his work. (laughs) Yes. And it's brilliant because we are, we think everything is about us. And now what that looks like if you grew up in an alcoholic home is mummy and daddy are fighting because I am bad and I am wrong. So as a result, that inner critic, that voice inside my head started to get louder and louder and louder. So I decided that I had to be better, that I wasn't good enough and I had to be better. That coupled with growing up in a family environment, which was heavily sport focused. So I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, and AFL football is a religion here uh, for any Melburnians that are listening along today. And my family was heavily involved in one of the football clubs. And I do not have a sporting bone in my body. So once again, I felt 
apart from. I didn't feel like I was part of my family unit. And I would see my brother getting all of the this praise and these accolades, and we would spend every weekend watching him play sport. And I kept thinking to myself, well, what, what can I do to be special? What can I do to stand out? So there was this constant idea circulating in my mind that I wasn't good enough and that I wasn't lovable. And so I really started striving. And I, you know, at first it was in academia, uh, around the age of eight or nine, I found music and I really fell into music quite heavily. I was doing a lot of performing, playing a lot of instruments, constantly striving for that attention from my parents, which unfortunately it never really hit the spot. Like maybe I'd get a t- pat on the back when I got the lead role in a musical, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that time that I could see my brother getting. And so I was really jealous and I just, I kept going back to this idea that it was because I was defective. So fast forward to the age of 12 and I discover alcohol and I'll never forget that first night that I drank alcohol because in that moment, it's like I had found the elixir or the solution to all my problems because in that moment, that voice or those voices, I should say, that were constant inside my mind, the ones that told me I was unlovable, not good enough, unworthy, all of a sudden they went quiet. And it was like for the first time, there was just peace. And so I thought, I need more of that. And I drank more. Now, of course, I didn't realize at the time, the more I drank, I I wasn't going to find more peace and serenity. I was going to start feeling really unwell because I was putting a poison into my body. And so sure enough, I ended up drinking to blackout that night and I got in a lot of trouble because we were at a big Christmas party and my parents were there and they were really angry with me. And unfortunately, they didn't have the tools to really use that as an opportunity for me to learn. Uh, It was more they responded with punishment, which that then taught me I needed to learn how to hide this better. So I started to become manipulative. I started to become dishonest because I was like, you can't take away the one thing I've found that works. So I'm just going to find a way to hide it. Typical addict behavior, right? (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly right. And so I started to grow up and this was the crazy, the craziness was that there was one version of me, Lou, that was a prefect at school, music captain, traveling the world, winning these singing competitions, getting A pluses, all like I couldn't have been more perfect in inverted commas on one side of the spectrum. Then the other side of Ash was going out on the weekends, hooking up with guys, taking drugs, drinking every weekend. It was just like Jekyll and Hyde. Like I was just two completely different people. And I didn't know where I actually was in the middle of that, like where the line was, where the real Ash actually stood between those two versions. So once again, Mm. this sense of just complete disconnection from self. Mm. But because I was such a high functioning alcoholic is the, that's the phrase, the label that I use and people can use whatever works for them, but that's how I identify. What that meant was that I was able to get away with this behavior for a really, really long time. So I had my first drink at 12 and I didn't get sober until 32. And there was a lot of chaos and destruction along the way. Yeah. I I think that there's a lot of 
people that share the same story, but they just never got sober. I know that like teen drinking and, you know, early 20s, it's so prevalent, but people just don't hit that rock bottom moment and have Mm. that reckoning or either they do and they don't know where to turn to. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. I... (laughs) I've spoken to a couple of my family members about this because, to be honest, I got sober at 32 because the last two years of my drinking were unbearable, but that was because I had quite a significant trauma, a significant event occur, which I'm happy to share with you now, which I think really accelerated my alcoholism to the point where I hit my rock bottom probably a decade before I think I would have had this not happened. So essentially what happened was I was due to get married and I had been down in Melbourne with my fiance at the time attending another friend's wedding and we received a phone call on the Saturday morning after the wedding uh, that my fiance's brother hadn't come into work that day. And the reason we were getting the call was because he lived with us. Uh, he was he was very, very close to both of us. And we basically instructed the person on the end of the line just to go to our apartment in Bondi and to jump over the fence and just to, just to wake Dan up because he was probably just asleep. Uh, and unfortunately, that wasn't the case. When they got to the apartment, they found that Dan was there. He had taken his own life. And this was two weeks before our wedding day. And I only mention that because it helps to give context to the chaos that sort of ensued that next period, that next chapter of my life. So basically we, we received the news on the Saturday. We flew straight from Melbourne to Sydney. The next week was an absolute blur, but I remember that it was almost like a sliding doors moment from when I took that phone call and received the news. It was like something, a switch like flipped in my brain. And I just thought, I'm done. Like this is too hard. And I'm going to drink my way through this because I don't know how I'm going to cope without alcohol, without something to numb the pain, because this pain is too great. It's going to swallow me whole. It was the deepest grief I've ever, ever experienced in my life. And so I started drinking every day. Up until that point, I'd never been a daily drinker. I was a very heavy drinker, but I could still pull up stumps and get back to work on a Monday and and, and hold off till Thursday, Friday. But I started drinking every day. And so we, we found out the news and seven days later, we had the funeral. And then seven days after that, we had the wedding. And, you know, for anybody that was there that day, like it it was so clear that the best man wasn't there. And I still to this day look back and wonder how we got through it, you know, but for the grace of God and our families and the amount of love that was there in that room, but it was just such a blur. And then unfortunately the sad part of the story continues because I really don't think my husband and I were ever able to recover from that and we were never really able to build the foundations of a strong marriage. He fell into his substance abuse, which was marijuana, and I fell into drinking and we really spent the next two years just growing apart rather than growing together. And I can look back on that now with hindsight and I can see the blessings in it because it's it's led me to where I am today. And my ex-husband is also now clean and sober today, which is just incredible. 
uh, but we had to go through that pain. Mm-hmm. But going back to to the reason why I'm sharing that story, I'm so that sorry I, for your loss, Ash. It's just um, un, incredible, like loss, and to hold the polarity of that, and also what's meant to be the happiest day of your life. It's just I can understand how it was too much for you to process. Yeah, I think I just completely shut off. I do. I think I went into that fight or flight response where I couldn't. I actually couldn't be in reality. It was just too painful. And such, I think the shock as well as the reality, like it was almost like my brain just couldn't compute what was happening. Mm. And so that's where I really became reliant on alcohol. You know, we, we, we both took some time off after the wedding. We, we went on our honeymoon down to Tasmania. We came back. We both had a little bit of time off. And that wasn't good for me because with idle time, I just, I just filled it with drinking. And that's where that progression really kicked off. And I started to become a daily dependent drinker. And so what that would look like, I was never a morning drinker, but I was definitely a daily drinker. And so what would happen is I would wake up in the morning with the most hideous hangover you could possibly imagine, splitting headache, dry mouth, foggy, all the rest of it, I would get up and I would swear to myself, black and blue, I'm not going to drink again today. And I would get myself up. I would have a coffee. I would go to work. I would buy around lunchtime. I'd be able to stomach some food. And then all of a sudden around the early afternoon, I would start to what I thought at the time was have a change of heart. I would tell myself, oh, you know, it wasn't that bad. Oh, look, I think you're overreacting. One glass of wine tonight won't hurt. That it'll just take the edge off. It'll help you sleep. Like whatever stories I could use to rationalize and justify having a drink that day, that would start to kick up. And then that noise, that voice would get louder and louder until on my way home, almost against my will, I would find myself pulling into the bottle shop on the way home. Sometimes I would get home and I would I would be like, how did this even, I, I don't even remember this happening. It was just like autopilot. And then of course, as alcoholics, once we start drinking, we, we really can't stop. And so I would have that one glass of wine with every intention of only having one, but it would never, ever be one. And I couldn't stop until I was blacked out and passed out. So that cycle would just repeat itself again and again and again. Mm. I can't imagine how unhealthy and out of control you must have felt. Like when you're, when you're just saying what the daily routine was like, you must have felt like a horrifying treadmill. Do you want to know the crazy though, Lou? Like, of course. Because I was because I was so high functioning, I was still getting up at 6 a.m. and going and doing a HIIT workout. Like I was everything that I needed to do to make sure everything looked okay. Like I was smoking a packet of cigarettes a night, like everything that destructive I could have been doing, I was doing. And, and I was like, but it's okay because on the weekends I have my green smoothie and I do Bondi to Bronte and I did like, I just delusion. And the crazy thing is, is when you're in it, your tolerance for pain and your tolerance for discomfort, in my experience, it gets higher and higher and higher. Like it's so funny these days, I can eat a piece of sugar and I'll notice the, the the effect that it has on my body. Like that is that blows my mind. Back in the day, I would pour two bottles of wine down my system and barely feel a thing. Like mm. I'm so much more in tune to my body now. But yeah, at the and time. Sensitive. And sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. But at the time, oh my gosh, I could have been, I honestly could have been hit by 
a Mack truck and I probably would have gotten up, dusted myself off and kept going. Just so numb. Just so numb. Yeah. I really want to go back to your childhood because something that you said like just really resonates and that's the fact that you said you wore a lot of masks and you had this good girl perfectionist tendency which I can really really relate to and I I wonder if you've ever considered if you are a highly sensitive person because a lot of sensitive girls are really good at you know putting on the the perfectionist cape and then really suffering a lot on the inside and then Mm. also using substances or behaviours to numb the intensity of life. Mm. Yeah, it's something I haven't haven't really thought about. I think because for me my perfectionism was driven by a need for validation. Mm. So I was striving because I thought that if I wasn't the best then you wouldn't love me. And it was this constant seeking of approval. So there was no self-worth. I couldn't, there was no self-esteem and there was no self-worth. So I was constantly looking for things outside of myself, whether that was a pat on the back, a verbal recognition, an award, whatever I needed from everybody else. That's how I valued myself. Like I was Mm. a good person. I was okay if everybody thought I was great. If I found out you didn't like me, like that was soul destroying. Mm. Like today I'm really okay if you don't like me. (laughs) Like that's cool. Like it's so just Mm. the difference between in the, you know, the, the attitudes and the outlook I used to have compared to now. And that's all come from me really working on myself, becoming comfortable in my own skin and doing that deep inner work, knowing that I I am enough, I am worthy. And I have this self-esteem now because I'm doing esteemable things. Mm. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you sure are. And it's that internal, you know, locus of validation rather than looking outside. And also the mask is off. You know, mm. it's not like you're, you don't have a mask on as a child wanting to be perfect. You don't have a mask on as an addict trying to like keep it all together so no one finds out you know, how bad it yeah. really is. Now yeah. it's like, this is who I am. Yeah. I mean, one of the really interesting things that I've even started to notice, and this is, I'm getting more and more clarity around this the longer I stay sober, is I used to always be the happy, bubbly girl. In fact, the reason that my podcast is called Behind the Smile is partly to do with the fact that when I was in rehab, I was almost given a contract, which is like a warning, uh, where my primary therapist was was about to say to me, you can you need to stop smiling because I would use that was my number one defense. My number one mask was this big smile planted across my face. And these days, just as what happened when we first got on here before we started recording, Lou, you said, how are you, Ash? And, and I didn't say, I'm amazing, did I? Mm. I? I went straight to the heart of this is where I'm at right now. And mm. it's not about being negative or um, oversharing because there are, you know, there's boundaries as well. And I think there's a place and a time based on your relationship with any given person. But when somebody asks me how I am these days, I answer them honestly. And I actually find when I spend too much time with people who are always really happy and everything's amazing, like I find it a little bit nauseating. Oh, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But that was me, that I was that person. Mm. And and I, and I fully, you know, I, I try and, I try and hold space and, and be empathetic toward, because I know that there's, there must be something that they're hiding, but, Mm. you know, and I, and I can see myself in that which is always the case with any sort of behavior that's getting under my skin. It's like, well, where am I? What time of my life have I been that person? Um, 
but yeah, just getting really clear on and who I on who I am and knowing that if I'm showing up as my most authentic self and that's too much for someone or or I'm not somebody's cup of tea, that is absolutely okay. I do not need to change a thing. Mm, so true. And you don't. What was the moment you realized you had a problem with alcohol and you were an alcoholic mm. and you needed to get help? Ooh, yeah. I mean, I should have known when I was 19 and I moved out of home really young. I was 17. I just finished school and I had started dating this guy who was a drug dealer and we were living in Elwood and I, um, I ended up getting myself into a lot of trouble where basically I, I owed a dealer a, a lot of money and I, I ended up selling my guitar, my saxophone, went down to cash converters on Chapel Street. That didn't get me enough money. So I ended up having to go to my parents. And at the time, my dad wasn't in recovery yet and we, we didn't know what to do. So they did the best with what they had at the time. And my dad ended up taking me to this health retreat in Queensland where we did colonic irrigation and isotonics and fasting, which was all good and well because it detoxed me, but I didn't do any therapy. I didn't do any, there was no breakdown of trauma or even addiction. So, you know, I got back and I started drinking and using again pretty much straight away. So that should have been a warning sign, but it wasn't. And I, I, again, I think I just thought to myself, Ash, you know, that was a bit out of control. Let's not make sure we get to that stage again. But as long as you can manage this and hide it, then we can keep doing it. And then in 2014, I'd basically burnt my life to the ground in Melbourne. I had destroyed a relationship that was really, really special. And he was a beautiful, beautiful human being. And, you know, I really just, I was just in such a self-destructive phase of my life that I threw that away. And being that Melbourne and Bayside in particular is quite a small community, I really felt like I couldn't really show my face around here anymore. So with my tail between my legs, I packed up my life and I moved to Sydney. And in recovery, we call that doing a geographical. But the problem is where you go, there you'll be. And my problems just got in my suitcase and followed me up there. And what was worse was in Sydney, I was able to hide things a lot better because I didn't know a single soul up there. I knew one or two people. And so my family weren't there, my close friends weren't there, and I really started to party a lot when I got to Sydney. Fast forward nine months later, that's when I met my the man that I later married, Max. Uh, and yeah, it was just like, I think because I was surrounding myself with people who drank and partied like I did. I didn't really have anybody pointing out that I needed to slow down or stop. The other thing that was really tricky was that I was ticking all of life's boxes, Lou. So everything that I had been told I needed to achieve or that society deemed successful, I had done. So I was climbing the corporate ladder. I was working for a the number one global beauty company. I was traveling the world. I was getting married. I had, I was, I bought my own home in Bondi overlooking the beach, like everything that I thought I needed to do to be okay. Huge milestones. All of that tick, tick, tick. And yet Mm. I'm sitting there and there's this God-shaped hole in my soul that I can't get enough to fill it. Like nothing is filling this void, but I still don't think I'm an alcoholic because I, for some reason, And this is despite the fact that in 2010, my dad got into recovery and was identifying as an alcoholic. I still 
managed to convince myself that because I wasn't homeless, living under a bridge, drinking out of a brown paper bag, I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. And so that that it's the it's called the disease of denial for a reason. I was in so much denial that I had a problem until it got to that point, which was my rock bottom, which was the 14th of February, 2020. And I'd come down to Melbourne for a, a work trip because the company I was working for was still based in Melbourne, even though I was living in Sydney and I was down here for a week. And I remember telling myself it was a Friday night. I was staying at my mum's for the weekend and I decided not to go to work drinks because by this stage I was really, I wasn't sure what was going to happen when I took a drink. I couldn't guarantee my behavior. So I decided I was very much drinking alone and at home. And so I picked up a bottle of wine on the way home and I had a glass of wine and then a friend invited me to go out and to meet him in Richmond. And I remember saying to my mom, hey, mom, I'm just heading out for one drink. Now, Lou, if you had hooked me up to a lie detector test in that moment, I would have passed. Like I was convinced (laughs) I was going out for one drink. Fast forward, I walk through the door the next morning. I've lied to her about where I've been. She knows that I'm lying. The look on her face has been burned into my memory and I'll never forget it. And it was in that moment, I literally saw her heart break that I fell to my knees and I said, I can't do this anymore. I need help. Mm. And that was really, that was for me, that moment where I realized I'd been trying for two years to get this under control myself, to manage and control this. And I clearly couldn't. I had broken a promise to myself every single day for two years and I couldn't look at myself in the mirror anymore. Like I had, I was just broken. I'd had enough. So we reached out to a rehab that was up in Sydney and within seven days, I checked myself in there. So that was, yeah, the 24th of Feb, 2020. Mm. <sighs> Such an incredible story. And what it sounds to me like is it took the reflection of your dysfunction in your own mother's eyes for you to have that realisation. Because if it hadn't been for that, you might have just kept trying to hold it all together. But you realised it was hurting her. Yeah, I truly believe that had I been in Sydney that weekend and gone out on the Friday night and walked home, you know, walked through the door Saturday morning, like that was just, that was normal. That was just a normal occurrence for me. So I think, yeah, everything had to line up in that moment. I do think it was a bit of a God job uh, and a spiritual Mm. experience for me to have that moment where I just went, I'm done, you know, and I actually think that I, I, I find myself so grateful for that moment and that it happened when it did and not another 10 years from now. Mm, absolutely. The sooner the better, right? <laughs> oh, I look. I literally, I see people in recovery these days coming in in their early 20s and I think, oh my goodness, how amazing. You've got your whole life ahead of you. Totally. One thing that's so interesting about your story is how strong you are as a human and how together you had it. And like you said in your own words, I was ticking all the boxes. And do you think that almost for people like you who are so high achieving and can hold it together, do you think that delays their rock bottom moment? Absolutely, without a doubt, because here's the thing. If you've lost it all, then you're not holding on to anything. Like if, if, if you've burnt your life to the ground and there's really nothing left, then sometimes there's a willingness. We call it the gift of desperation. Like until you have the gift of desperation, are you willing to go to any lengths? Because choosing to get sober, choosing to step into recovery from whatever it is in your life is not easy. You know, it mm. takes a lot of resilience, a lot of perseverance. You need to learn how to sit in the shit and 
get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Like all of this stuff, if it was easy, everyone would do it, Lou. This is the thing. You know, I really do think that pain is an incredible driver when it comes to stepping into recovery. And so we do, we do need to get to that point. And unfortunately, when you're high functioning, it can take a lot longer to get there. And I guess that's why I I point out that, you know, had I not lost Dan in 2018, you know, it may have been another 10, 15 years. I think I was always headed. Like that's Mm. the train I was on. It's just that I jumped onto the express when that (laughs) happened in 2018, you know. What an analogy. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and I and I am, I'm truly grateful for that. What are your thoughts on people who are wanting to drink less? And I think, I actually think that this is becoming more normal to be more sober. Yes. <laughs> I, I don't know whether I'm articulating this right, but I'm seeing like young people who are like, yeah, I don't really want to drink. And it's not mm. as much as what I feel like my generation was like. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that because as, as an Australian culture, we seem to drink a lot. Mm. But I feel like things are shifting. And whether people are going completely sober or just less alcohol, um, I feel like it's a step in the right direction. What are your thoughts on this? Absolutely. Even I've noticed in the last three and a half years in my own period of sobriety, I've started to notice that more and more people are talking about it. There's a really big sober curious movement. A lot of people are talking about gray area drinking. Hmm. It's, you know, the term alcoholic is one that I identify with and I talk about it and I use it with a lot of passion because I truly believe that to remove the stigma around this word, we need to be talking about it more. Other people have different beliefs and that's okay too. For me, it's like whatever works for you. You know, the advent of these alcohol-free companies and now, you know, you can go into the bottle shop now and you can get like a really cool branded non-alc gin. Mm. You know, you can get all the the number of non-alcohol beers are incredible. Like there's so many options now so that if you did perhaps maybe want to go to a barbecue and not drink but also not feel like a leper, Mm. then you might have one of these drinks in your hand and that, that can be your way around it. So the conversation is definitely being normalized. Another really interesting point when you talk about the younger generation and their attitude towards alcohol, I think a couple of things are happening here. I think that there's more awareness around the detrimental impact it has on our health. So just as smoking was cool when we were growing up, I think that alcohol is having a bit of a cigarette moment. So Mm. people are becoming more aware of the negative impacts that it has on our health. And do people want to do that? But also social media you know, you can't get away with things the way that we did back in the day because everything is filmed, everything is put online. And so I do think that there's a consciousness around that as well, which maybe is holding people back from drinking or taking drugs the way we did. Mm. Oh my gosh. Thank God there was no smartphones when we were growing up. eh? (laughs) Oh, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. I want to ask you, Ash, if someone is feeling in this moment like they're a bit desperate, they don't know what to do, they think they might have a problem but they don't want to admit it to anyone in their close circle, what steps can they take or what research, what resources can they find? Mm, so the first thing that anybody listening, if you're feeling that way at the moment, the first thing I say is just reach out for help and know that this is this journey whether you end up being sober for life or just 
having a little break, like whatever it is, you don't do it alone. It's not a journey to be done on your own. It's something that I think requires support. Depending on what level you're at will will depend on the level of support that you require. But, you know, like feel free to reach out, send me a DM on Instagram. I will always get back to you and help you out and just have a conversation. But there are so many resources. I'm part of 12-step fellowships. So you can go to aa.org, which is a fantastic Mm. resource. But there are also so many different sober coaches online these days who can help you if that's more of the pathway that you want to look at. You can go on retreats. You can. There's so many different ways that you can just perhaps address your relationship with alcohol. Sobriety podcasts, you know, behind yes. a smile. Have a listen to that. <laughs> I know a great one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's also like epic quit lit out there. There's this book called by William Porter called Alcohol Explained, and he comes at it from a, a scientific background. And I just remember reading that book going oh my goodness, like light bulb after light bulb. So there's plenty of different resources out there, but just knowing that community is one of the most powerful ways of staying sober. So just Mm. like, don't let the fear or the shame or the stigma hold you back, especially when you're reaching out to somebody who's already walked the path, like reach out to somebody, you know, who is sober or has some sort of experience because they will never, ever be judging because they've walked the path before you. So they know exactly where you're at. Yeah. So true. And the the sober humans that I know and are friends with are just all such incredible, incredible people. So if mm. someone is looking for a friend, just find people who are in sobriety and they will be welcoming with open arms because everyone has a story, everyone's got their shame and no one is perfect, that is for sure. <laughs> exactly right, exactly right. And it's like it's I, I get it. If you're not in the sphere, if it's not an area that you've tapped into before, it can feel really overwhelming, like where do I even start? But honestly, like I could share 50 different accounts to go and follow on Instagram right now. Like there is so much out there once you start looking. So you just need to start. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing your heart, your inspirational story, your vulnerability. I know that so many people are going to benefit from this uh, particular episode. What are you sharing in the world currently at the moment? Where can people connect with you? Um, What have you got coming up? Oh, that's a great question. I've got a few exciting things happening at the moment, Lou. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, I'm really active on Instagram at ashbutters with two S's on the end. I've also got my website, ashbutters.com. I have free guided meditations that you can access. If you want those, just DM me the word meditate and I'll send those across to you. There's some great resources and great tools that are available as well. I'm also running a three-month immersive container program, which is all about stepping out from behind the smile and how we go from where we stop pretending and we start thriving. So for anybody who maybe has a bit of sobriety under their belt and they're thinking, well, what's next? Then this program is incredible. And then I also offer my one-on-one mentorship as well. So reaching out to me either through Instagram or the website are probably the two easiest ways you can find out more information there. I will link those two below in the show notes. And thank you so much, Ash. Keep shining your light. Keep doing this beautiful work. Oh, thank you, Lou. I'll see you soon, beautiful woman. Lots of love. Sending you lots of love. Thank you so much for listening today, everyone. If you loved this podcast, please share it with someone who you believe might need this message today. 
or share it on your social media and don't forget to tag me. I really love your feedback. You can reach me at hello at lukelly.com. That's Lou, K-E-L-L-E dot com. Until next time, stay happy, stay free. You are perfect as you are.